Welcome to the podcast of data and analytic in business. We will learn from the leading industry experts using data and analytics to solve the problems and create values in practice. We will also learn where the industry is heading to and how data and analytics will shape the industry in the future. Most importantly, how they are preparing their business for digital transformation and disruption in the future. I'm your host, Jason Tan, and thank you for listening. In this episode, we got Bryce Shepard. Bryce is the head of strategy, life and health APAC at Partnery, which is a global reinsurer providing multi-line reinsurance to insurance company with a total capital over 9 billion USD. As an actuary with a background in product and pricing in the life insurance industry, Bryce is helping Partnery to build and manage the team at APAC while serving their client in Asia-Pacific. Now, first of all, Bryce will share with us how actuaries are using data and analytics for decades and centuries to estimate and underwrite risk for the insurer. Beyond that, he also talked about how the actuaries can upskill themselves in the field of the data science and emerging technologies such as the AI, and apply some of those into the works that the actuaries are doing. Bryce went on to share with a lot of deep insight about the life insurer industry, how life insurer use data and use different techniques of data collection, for example, the historical data and also more of the continuous data collection to help underwriting the risk the insurance is taking on. Further than that, Bryce talked about the role of the reinsurer. What does the reinsurer do and how do they do their work? Going even deeper, Bryce talked about how Panari is developing digital and analytic solution to help with their client, i.e. the insurer, in taking on good risks while improving the customer experience such as faster application process and faster approval with the application. If you are someone who is a data scientist who always want to understand how data and analytics works in the insurance and reinsurance, this is one episode that you do not want to miss out. And I must say even someone like myself who have a reasonable understanding about the insurer and the reinsurance, what Bryce is sharing in this episode is totally blowing me away. For example, how the dynamic and the line between reinsurer and insurer is blurring and is changing. And in certain jurisdictions, such as UK, reinsurer is now taking on more hands-on approach to assume all the risks that the insurer used to take. Now, all of this would not have been possible if the reinsurer did not have the access to the data, information, and the analytic model that they can collect and they have the understanding around the growth. As a result of that, the role that they are playing is also changing and advancing depending on the jurisdiction that they are in. But most importantly, it allows them to adapt to the market 
that they are operating around the globe. Whether you are from the insurance industry or not, this is really the episode not to be missed, especially in understanding the dynamic of the industry is changing when you have access to the data and the technology than other players in the market. If you have any question for myself or Bryce, send us an email or connect to Bryce on LinkedIn. I will also share with you the thesis written by Bryce about the organizational success and effectiveness on the blog. If you want to hear more episodes like this, make sure you subscribe and reach out. As usual, if you have any feedback, please feel free to send me a message or email. I hope you enjoy. Thank you. Hey, Bryce. Welcome to the Analytics Show podcast. Super duper excited to chat with you here. I mean, we have known each other for super long time, but we finally meet again after chatting on LinkedIn. Yeah, it's been great. I'm glad we got in touch. And it's been really interesting to have a listen into your podcast series. It's really good. Thank you so much for your kind word. Now, I know that you are a lifelong learner and currently completing your master in business management and specialization in leadership and innovation. So, and you are also doing this thesis title and exploration of the organization effectiveness, life insurance industry study. Tell so us a little bit about this before we go on to some of the reinsurance stuff. <laughs> Yeah, when the title comes out like that, I could have created a little bit more sexier title. <laughs> but yeah, as I've um, kind of progressed in my career and been fortunate enough to go through a couple of companies and you know experienced firsthand how the organisation and the teams within it and their culture and the dynamics between them really provide that platform for success, and it influences everyone. So everyone within your team, for your clients, your distribution. And so when I came to Hong Kong, I, I thought I had the extra capacity. So I started this thesis or this master's because I wanted to learn more. I was really keen on kind of progressing the teams that I'm involved with and the organizations that I'm in. And life assurance, just saying it's, you know, people feel a little bit more traditional so I wanted to dive in and do the research and try and identify where other industries are succeeding where perhaps we aren't. And so I focused on five key areas, organisational culture, leadership, innovation, uh, something called knowledge management. And then given the environment that we're all in right now, virtual teams and how that influences what we're doing. And yeah, I, uh, I completed it last week. I handed it in. So I'm very, very excited to have, have a little bit more capacity now. And uh, yeah, it's got some good outcomes. If you don't mind me sharing one just to, for the viewers to take away, what came out from the interviews from all these CEOs and MDs was just how critical the hiring, promoting and training practices are within the organization and using those to steer the mindset of your teams and your organization. And that mindset is very key in being able to promote your innovation, to build your, your knowledge management and ensuring you don't go down with something that's called groupthink, which is when you've always got yes people around you. You don't get that variety of opinions or the diversity of views, which 
there's loads of research to say that more diversity creates more successful organizations. Um, yeah, it's good. It's interesting. And I'm, uh, I'm very happy that we did it. You reminded me a book that I read last year, who is the head of the people operation. Well, technically it's HR, but it sounds sexier to call people of operation <laughs> at Google. Now, part of the thing that we discuss about is the people analytics and also the hiring, the management of the people, finding the best people in the world to join Google, right? And obviously, Google has done that very, very well. I suppose one thing that it reminds me of what you were just saying is that you talk a lot about having the right culture and also attracting the right people because attracting the right people is half of the job done as opposed to hoping to mold the people into a different shape where they are not necessarily. From this study that you did, do you find that all of these MD CEO are sharing the same view, even though in the traditional industry like life insurance? I'll probably start with the research a little bit there because the research is very clear that what you say there, we should be starting with the who of the person because the who is, it's ingrained. It's our personalities. It's what we exhibit. And making sure that who is the right complement to within the team is the one that goes on to create the right results. And actually the technical side or the content and the knowledge is in, in most cases should be secondary because you can learn that stuff. Sure, experience comes into it, but the technical stuff you can learn on the job and you can learn that very quickly. So the who of the person is very critical. Uh, in terms of the CEOs and their views on it, one of the other outcomes there is that through the historical or more traditional hiring patterns where person A is very, very technically sound, they're actually the ones that get promoted. This is kind of a historical, more traditional view of how this has gone. And it's sort of culminated in boards and well, perhaps senior management teams having some very, very technical people within there, especially within actual professions and insurance, where these leaders are looking for skills to help them build their organization. So vision, a bit of creativity, this leadership helping them propagate the culture that they want and they're finding that they don't really have that support there because that skill set hasn't really been developed as these people have come through the organizations and I think because they're more conscious of that now that they're at the top they're trying to change their hiring promotion and training practices within there but there's a key relationship that needs to be fostered more and that's with you mentioned the people operations then. So it's that HR function where some of the outputs said that HR has almost become a management tool of your people where you you know, have a bit of a stick to say don't do that rather than using it as a strategic function of saying, right, we want to build a vision of this, of our organisation, the people this is a consistent output. The people are what make your organization. And the HR function it should have a lot of responsibility of that. And it can be argued that that link between business decisions and that HR function is not as strong as it should be. Now, will this thesis be available online where people who are interested uh, can get to have a read? 
some kind of yeah absolutely i'm working hard i the thesis it's like about 200 pages or something so i want to translate it into a, a medium that's a little bit more easy to read and take away the main points so um i'll work on a, a either a, a shortened article or maybe a bit of a powerpoint to um to share it with everyone because this is what it's all about sharing those insights and opinions and, and getting that conversation out there so that other managers or other other leaders can have that on their plate to be thinking about their teams. Wonderful. I'll get, I'll make sure I touch base again to get that PowerPoint and share that. And also the two other pages, this is the actual profession. That is actually how we met because you started as an actuary and um, at a sun about a day back in the day and you spent mostly of your career in the related fields of the work so for the listener who are not familiar with the actual science as a profession perhaps your own words share with us a bit about this profession yeah absolutely it's actually a common common question right after the question of what do you do the next one is and what is an actuary again? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> um, what I usually... Before data scientist was a non-thing, it used to be considered as the second sexiest job in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think that. Yeah, so when I usually answer that question, it, in a very concise way, in a nutshell, actuaries quantify future financial uncertainty. So given that broad remit, it means that we're involved in a lot of industries. We're in investments, pensions, insurance, and in kind of the focal areas of today in sustainability and climate change, because we've got a lot of risk and modeling expertise. In respect to the data analytics side, yeah, you're right. I would consider actuaries to be one of the first modern data scientists. And there's a bit of a great story if we've got a moment, about how the actuarial profession came about. And that's through kind of a gentleman called Edmund Haley in 1693. So he was able to use birth and death data from a local parish in order to produce a mortality table. So, And for everyone out there, that's just essentially what you use to predict when a person dies. And he did this in order to uh, help create a pension for the, the priests' um, wives. And it proved to be very successful, very accurate for a first mortality table. But the good little piece of trivia in this is that it's the same Edmund Haley that uh, we associate with Haley's Comet. The astronomer was actually the same guy who did the first mortality table. Right. So he's yeah. the same guy, too, of them. Yeah, yeah. It's a talented guy. A talented guy from back then, back in, um, in London, getting involved in starting our, our actuarial science. Now I know. I mean, I've been working with you guys for more than a decade now, but I never tried to find it out. So thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> now, the data and analytics have always been heavily used in many areas within the insurer, like in order to underwrite risk. And that is part of the role that you have been doing for quite a lot. Now, share with us some of these areas that are also prominent in using data analytics as well, uh, including the underwriting risks. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I might just take a step back and just explain what the underwriting is within that sentence. So the underwriting essentially means it's the assessment of how risky something is. 
And if I think about my specialty of life insurance or protection, it's assessing how risky a person is to perhaps die and, and claim on life or, or have a heart attack or stroke or, or be absent from work. And in order to evaluate that, we use data, any sort of data that we can get our hands on. From the traditional side, it's births and death registries <laughs> for a very long time. But as we have moved into the fourth revolution, the data revolution, we need to be considering more and more data sources to more accurately assess that risk or underwrite that risk. And instead of doing it in one point in time, we can do it dynamically. So many points in time and be monitoring this risk constantly. There's loads of examples. I'll pick a couple out for you. So in distribution, so that's kind of essentially agencies and banks which sell the policies. There's propensity to buy models and lapsation models. What these do is, is they make sure that the right product is sold uh, to the right person at the right time, and they do that through examining that person's behavioral history. So the very, very easy one is when we learn that someone's gotten married. We say, well, why don't you get a joint life policy now? You'll save yourself a bunch of money. And now that you're married, perhaps you want children. While we're talking about this, why don't you want to expand your coverage for children? So those propensity to buy models, using the availability of data and monitoring the person enables a better sales process, a better product, and so better value for the person. And the second one I wanted to mention, this is quite a cool one, and this is one of the reasons I, I'm very proud about our industry and what we offer, it's around what we call dynamic underwriting. And that's what I mentioned before about being able to constantly assess a person's risk over time. So this one, the example is in diabetes. So diabetics, they're a risky, risky person or a risky group of people, and they're often denied to get protection. And one of the key advances here in using data is through the availability of wearables and medical grade apparatus to monitor their blood sugar, being able to use these additional data sources and combined with their management plan, it enables us to better understand their risk and hence be able to offer them a product so that they can cover their mortgage, leave some wealth behind or be able to pay off their kids should something go wrong. So that's another example a good example of where we use data for the benefit. That is a great example. And when you say the term of the continuous data collection so that you can continue to assess the risk and estimate the risk, I suppose that is to some extent related to some of the devising role that you are doing at the PyFL, where you're using modern technology to continuously collect all of this data where just about 10 years ago or a decade ago, or maybe 20 years ago, was never really possible. Is it something that you were sort of like alluding to when you were saying the continuous data collection? Yeah, that's spot on, Jason. So whereas the previous example was specific for diabetics, if we expand that out to, to everyone, we're getting wearable or at least data on us all the time. So everyone has an iPhone. I'm not sure whether you said that, or an Android actually, whether you said that you enable the app to count the steps that you have. So what you have there is essentially a pedometer with you constantly. 
So we know, you know, how many steps a day that you're doing, how frequent they are. And there's actually a correlation between steps and intensity and the mortality of a person. So the lower steps you have, the more sedentary life you live, and that correlates with less mortality. So having these wearables in that sense, I use the example of a mobile, but I'm wearing my, my Garmin here that does steps. It does intensity of exercise. It does estimates VO2. It has gamification to make sure I get up every two hours, those sorts of things. This is very exciting for us in the insurance industry, and Pi uses this as well. Pi is specific to cardiovascular. Their metric translates your steps and exercise intensity into how your heart is being exercised. So this is another way of measuring if what you're doing is the right thing. So go for a cycle, go for a swim, measures your heart rate, converts it into a Pi which is a personal activity intelligence metric. You combine that with a bit of gamification and what you're doing is you're promoting healthy living. So there's, so there's two sides to it. One's that promotion and engagement for healthy living. And the second one is the risk assessment side, which is what we're very much interested in. Just very quickly, what does PI stand for and what is your role as an advisor at PI Health? Yeah, sure. I'm really fascinated by these sorts of propositions. And uh, I'm at Pi, all the people at Pi, a couple of years now. And I think it's important to investigate these things because I really do believe that they're the future. Pi stands for personal activity intelligence. And they, they use it in a proposition. It's backed by medical science, and, and a lot of publications have been written on this of understanding how healthy your heart is and how you exercise your heart has a direct link to how healthy you are and the reduction of cardiovascular disease. Cardiovascular disease and associated diseases is the number one killer globally. So here we are, we have this metric, which is able to assess this risk. And so it can be quite powerful given the user or the applicant or whoever on the street can look at this, see their metric and be thinking, my Pi Health score is um, going down a fair bit. I need to get off the couch. <laughs> um, and, and it translates it into stories to say, if you continue this way, your your risk increases by you know, 5% for heart disease or whatnot. And I think it's that's valuable in terms of insurers because you're not just there for that claim, but you're providing insight to them to say what you're doing right now, it's not really healthy. Perhaps you want to start some more exercise and it works out for you and it works out for the insurer as well. It sounds like the insurer perhaps could tap into this data from the Pipe Health and the Fitness Edge Risk Monitoring Calculator, all those sort of things, and do a personalized research assessment and the insurance pricing that? Yeah. So that question there is, a, is the key one and it's a bit of a complicated one. So the way that we assess risk at the moment is much more credible and certain. So it's driven by many, many years of claims history. But what the industry is on right now is a journey. It's a journey from using those historical data points to being much more data-driven in terms of alternative data sources. And on that journey, at the moment, 
there's not the direct link to the claims. So the credibility has not really been built up yet. To build that up, we need to be introducing these sorts of digital health metrics, for example, the pie, into our propositions. And people are using these already. You know, they're within Strava, they're within Garmin, they're within Fitbit, they're within all these health apps that we have. And so it's up to insurers to we need to step up our game and be able to take on this new data and be able to use it in the most credible way possible to be performing these underwriting of the risks. We're not all the way there yet, but we're on that journey and um, and we're seeing some really cool propositions coming out throughout the world. It reminded me of the, I think about seven or eight years ago, some of the insurer in the GI, so the general insurance, they came out these pay-as-you-go insurance, which is about installing a telemetrics, I think is that called? Uh, almost like a GPS into the car. And then you will only pay as per kilometer or the miles of that of your travel. It never actually really took off though. Obviously, I think there could be multiple reasons. I suspect that the installation of the device is one issue. But putting this together, I can't help but to see the similarity. But I suppose the upside of PyHealth is that you don't necessarily have that sort of challenge of extra devices because everyone already have got a wearable, everyone has got a smartphone. But do you think putting that together, I think it's kind of, sorry to put you on the spot. Do you think you face uh, the similar challenges that the GI were facing that to be able to take that off in, by including those sort of uh, data in assessing the risk? Yeah, I'll even go beyond that. I'd say we have the similar problems and then more some. And the reason why they're even more so is the GI policies, they're what we call short-term policies. So pretty much annual. And at the end of that year that you can reprice based upon however the risk changes. We step into life assurance because they're long-term contracts. So they can be aligned to your mortgage. So it can be 30 years or even in some cases, they can be whole of life. So these are 50-year policies. And if you're trying to guarantee a premium for 50 years, it is unbelievably hard. That's a very key challenge. And it's a challenge, but not, not an insurmountable one because products are beginning to change. We're trying to bring in more lifestyle or lifestyling products where, which is able to be a bit more flexible to the person as they go through their life cycle. So as they buy their first house, get they get married, they have kids, they enter their 50s, so that what they're paying for is more aligned to, to the risk that they're in. But, yeah, with this wearables, there's also, just getting into the technical side of it, there's a worry that if you over-personalise the insurance, you kind of begin to step away from the whole foundational philosophy of insurance, which is you pay in and you spread the risk. Yeah. You spread the risk throughout a pool to make it affordable for everyone so that everyone can have this coverage. If we start to get more and more personalized, which I think is good in some areas, but it does create for those risky people, potentially very high premiums, which may actually put them off purchasing in the first place, which means that they should something bad happen, they'll be left quite financially vulnerable. And we don't want that. So 
there is a balance and there is a challenge between how we're designing our products to make sure that those people can still get coverage at an affordable price. That is even also a debate in the GI industry. I, I remember years and years ago when I was still at Suncup and when we were doing the XY coordinate to do the research dress pricing. And again, often that whole philosophy came up for the debate is that what, what is really the role of the insurer? Like, is it the collective of the risk so that everyone is protected? Or are we personalizing that too much? And the climate of the, and also it also remind me the climate in the state where there is this debate about the health insurance is always a big question and also a particular sensitive issue. So I don't know how they will ever get away for that. So yeah, I think that is really... It is a challenge, yeah. I mean, when when the states brought in um, preferred underwriting, which is essentially this, it kind of halved the market size. So we don't want to do that because that leaves, leaves a lot of people without coverage and that safety net. So it's not a silver bullet at the moment, but yeah, we, we're all making sure we try our hardest to solve it. Now, speaking of that, it's a good time to talk a little bit about the company that you work for, Panari, because Panari is a reinsurer and it helps the insurer to protect themselves uh, so that everyone can be covered. Now, for some of the listeners who are not familiar with the reinsurance, how would you describe to them and what does Panari do around the world? Yeah, sure thing. Yeah, it's similar but not the same as insurance. So the whole purpose of reinsurance is we insure the insurers. So we make sure that we're there to make sure that they pay claims themselves. And why we're there? Well, we're there because it enables the insurers to sell more policies. So it enables them to be able to reach further, provide a bigger balance sheet and become bigger organizations. And in terms of partnery, we're uh, what's called a composite reinsurer. So that means we reinsure on the property and casualty side or the general side. Um, so that's events like, well, like the Australian bushfires last year or the Japanese earthquakes. So we, we help the insurers pay a portion of those claims. And the other side is kind of my side. So this is the life protection side. And these cover risks that we call biometric risks. That's just a term that essentially says life assurance or trauma coverage or income protection. It's any risk that's associated with the biology of the human. Yeah, so we're with the composite reinsurer. We're, we're global. So we're in North America, we're in Asia, we're in Europe. And I guess what differentiates us a bit is that uh, we're a little bit smaller in comparison to some of our other competitors, but that has a very big advantage of enabling us to get very close to our clients, understand their needs, their pain points a lot better, and so act with a bit of bit more agility and, and flexibility in providing them solutions. And, and that's what our clients want. And you are based in Hong Kong regional office. Where is the headquarter of Paniri? Technically, the headquarters in Bermuda. There's lots of, of reinsurer headquarters in, in Bermuda. Other main offices are kind of Zurich, Paris, Hong Kong here, Toronto. And we've got quite a few around. Crystal, share with us about your major responsibility here as the head of strategy at Paniri. Yeah, sure thing. As the head of strategy, I guess I wear a lot of hats. 
I was kind of first brought on to to help with building the team out because we were quite small at that stage. We doubled in size in 2020. So I was kind of tasked with building the processes and framework to make the organization or the business unit run well here. That as well as what I call our ABC, our Asian Business Cube, which is kind of the strategy for what markets we're playing in what risks we want to be accepting and the clients that, that we want to be aligning ourselves with. And then my background is traditionally pricing and products and most recently the last kind of best part of decades business development. I get a lot involved in proposition work, which is the stuff we're talking about, about wearables, product design, some operational things. Yeah, like I said, I, I wear a few hats which is great, which is actually why I really like it. I like the, the variety. Good stuff. Now, as a reinsurer, you don't necessarily have the luxury or the direct access to the customer data or the, the risk that is being insured or the underwritten. So I suppose my question for you and for the listener is then how would you be able to use data analytics? How would you be able to use the actual science to better estimate in order to underwriting the risk and considering that the lack of the access to those granularity of the data? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And there's kind of a variance in the answer there because we still get access to, to all the critical data. So we wouldn't be doing business without knowing the key data points that enable us to understand the risk. And part of that is a discussion between the insurer and us of what they're happy to share in advance in terms of customer insights to do. But one of the key advantages of a reinsurer is this global footprint. So if we take a look at one insurer, they have their view of the customer base, which they offer their products, they may do it very, very well, and they understand that very well, but there is a much wider picture to that. And the reinsurer through having multiple, lots of clients and lots of products and lots of markets using different distributions, using different underwriting approaches, using different data analytics for claims, through having this breadth of experience, we're able to offer much more in-depth insights for that one insurer for their for the place that they play in to help them understand their risk in a different light or be able to help with quicker underwriting or expand their sales and, and market share through product development. That's kind of where the key part for the reinsurer comes into play is that although the specific data for that insurer they do have they are the closest to their customer for sure and they would they own that client relationship. But we just have a lot of data in the background through many different sides. Interesting. Now, bringing all this together and also the advising world works that you do at the Pipe Health, as well as the background as an actuary, I'm interested to see your view. What is the role that or the impact of the data and analytic technology is playing, especially like the technology itself is advancing. And also the exposure of it, it basically means that everyone is talking about the data, everyone is talking about analytics, uh, it's like the new oil, everyone is more aware of it. I think it's Absolutely. a positive thing, and especially from the actual point of view, right? 
But I'm keen to know, what do you think is the impact on the feel of this work and also the insurance industry as a whole? Then? Absolutely huge. Absolutely huge. And it's of the utmost importance that we are able to understand the recent advances in technology and you know AI and machine learning or whatnot in order to incorporate that into our thought processes and risk assessments because then we're able to enable better pricing, better products, so that there's actual benefit for the public and, and the customers. I'll probably answer this in two, two trains of thought. The first is with the profession. So as you said, data is what drives a lot of our profession and there's lots and lots of data out there at the moment. So how do we look at that? The techniques for analyzing data is just getting very sophisticated very quickly and you've got a lot of kind of providers out there that are able to to offer services to do this as well. So one of the key things for us as actuaries is being able to upskill, ensure that we are training ourselves, ensure that we're educated for these new approaches, being able to understand the AI algorithm that a partner is doing or the machine learning algorithm and what they're doing. Through understanding that, that's when we're able to take account of it and actually incorporate that into how it changes our view of the data and how we can change the pricing or the underwriting because of it. Because actuaries have a very key role within insurance, within protection, within all these things in that risk role. So having us there and being able to to understand is absolutely critical. And the profession is doing fantastic things. We've got a data science, um, data science educational piece there or professional add-on that we have. You know, our new president, Tan Su Che, has, has a digital transformation agenda and kind of changing the mindset of actuaries and changing how we view the world to ensure we take on or this new wave of, of data and technology and that we're doing it as quickly as we can and in the right way. And the second part that you were... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. the second part's the market part. So this is the really exciting part. I tell you, there's so much exciting propositions and companies out there that are being able to apply different technologies for the benefit. Lots of them are in the medical space. There's, there's a very well-known one about the AI dermatologist that's able to analyze your skin for cancers or for dermatological problems better than the doctor because they've got a wealth of data behind them and they can spot it better. One on the insurance side, one of the cool ones that we have in the reinsurance space is using um, uh, OCR, so that's optical character recognition and text mining. So what this is is on the claims front, when, and it's in China actually, that's very important, when a claims kind of application is comes in, usually it's manual, it's physical, it takes a bit of time. And during that time, you've got a policyholder out there who's waiting on that money and it's a very sensitive, very vulnerable time. So what we've done is um, using OCR, you're ch- able to change the characters into numbers through natural language processing And then you're able through machine learning of those numbers, be able to triage those claims and be able to say, okay, well, I've just image read that this file and I've run it through the algorithm and with 98% 
probability. I know that this is a heart attack. I know that at 98% it's going to be paid anyway. Okay, just pay the claim. And so what was or could be a week-long process can happen very, very instantly or, or within a few minutes. The other side is we were touching on it earlier, and this is to do with the underwriting. So underwriting at the moment in many places, it's a bit cumbersome. You go in there, you fill out an application form. There may be some problems, so some maybe some medical history, and you may have to get a blood test. You may have to go to a nurse's office or a doctor's office for a physical, and then two weeks later, three weeks later, you might finally know whether you've got coverage. Now, where we're going now is moving from this traditional underwriting approach through data-driven underwriting. And, and this is what we were looking at before. So this data-driven underwriting is using the wearables. It's using other medical apparatus to be able to do the same sort of risk assessment, but it's less invasive. It gets it to the decision quicker to the person so that they are able to know whether they can get, get coverage or not at the affordable price or not right there. And we're going to be getting better and better at it as we understand the data more. And it just offers a much more pleasurable experience than the old school ways of, of purchasing life insurance. That is amazing in terms of like how about the process it takes to improve the process, the application process, but also about improving the customer experience. Now that Absolutely. look into one of the question I have for you is that from my research, I know that you guys have been working on using pre-underwritten customer segment for yeah. making that digital application process faster and contactless. That seems like a very similar to what you were highlighting earlier. My question for you is how is the progress on that so far? Yeah, it's going really well. This is actually, so it's a proposition that we call segmented underwriting for um, pre-underwriting and offering products to customers. It's basically been enabled through some really great work within the States. So in the US, the availability of data there is much more wealthy than, than other places. So they've got linked data between kind of pharmaceutical purchasing, treatment purchasing, criminal, criminal history, financial history, lots of these. And through the availability of this data, they're able to produce a life scoring model, which is essentially able to assign a number and, and kind of predict using these alternative data sources, your likeliness of being able to claim. What we've done is we've taken a certain proportion of that model and that outcome and applied it within the banking space. So what we've looked at is using the financial information of banking customers and being able to say, okay, well, this person who has assets under management of X or multiple accounts or has a mortgage, we know based upon the history that these people have a better risk profile. And so we're able to say, okay, well, we know this. We know this already. Why don't we just pre-underwrite you and say, okay, well, we're happy to offer this product to you right now with this sum assured. And the whole idea is twofold. It makes a much more tailored experience for them. Um, it's shorter experience, shorter underwriting, and it's aimed to build the market share for the insurer client as well because it attracts the good risks um, to their portfolio. So we're very, very excited about the solution applying it in banking. Indeed, I think is a little bit similar to the cherry, what I described as a cherry picking in the GI. Uh -huh. That seems to be 
also play well or panari as a smaller reinsurer. But again, you guys are more nimble and also to be able to use that to compete with the bigger player. Is that the way that you can look at it as well? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So this is taking a certain view on the model and thinking how can we apply this in a way that makes the lives of the customers easier, produces a valuable solution for the insurer at the same time, and this ticks those boxes perfectly. I have to say it really changed my understanding and my perception of the reinsurer. But I'll come back to that before. before. Yeah, sure. <laughs> my question for you then, continue of my question about this pre-underwritten customer segment. So what are the benefits that is already noticeable from the from underwriting customer segment using this alternative proxy risk factor in terms of the sales or the customer interaction? Yeah. So the most obvious benefit is to the customer. So that's in the improvement of the actual experience. When you say the customer, do you refer to the insurer or do you refer to the people who buy the insurance from the insurer? Yeah, I know that's a good point of difference. So uh, we'll call the customer you and me, and then I'll, I'll call the clients the insurer, perhaps maybe, or maybe I'll just call the insurer and the insurer. So the most obvious benefit is to the customer. So this is making sure that their experience in purchasing insurance is seamless. Um, it's a positive experience for them. So when they're interacting with their bank, and of course the bank has, has their own bunch of data on their clients, they will be able to know when that, as I alluded to before, the right person, the right product, the right time. They'll know when they should be pushing this sort of coverage and by incorporating this solution as well, you can be pre-underwriting. So understanding that risk before it and so that it makes the purchasing of it a lot easier. And the secondary benefit here is this is just in terms of sales for the insurer. Having that easy onboarding experience that will be well-received by the customer, more sales for the insurer than they're happy with too. Now, the bit that I say, it really changed my understanding and my perception about the reinsurer is that my question is, is it a common practice for a reinsurer to develop and provide analytic solution to your client, i.e. insurer? Because for me, I was under the impression that they are more like the private the equity guy, i.e. I'll take a portion of your risk and here's the check. If you if you claim beyond a certain size, I'll cover that. So it really changed my whole idea and my understanding of the reinsurer. Is that common? Uh, I'm glad that I'm changing your view on it because we're so much more than just the writing of checks. <laughs> <laughs> we, we offer loads of solutions, loads of solutions. So anything that we offer a solution-wise to help our clients or our insurers to better understand the customer or the risk they're writing is what we do. So a lot of it's on the underwriting side, helping them design their products, design the wording within them, how they can streamline their underwriting process. Because we share the risk, we both need to, to get on board with it. So we offer the, these solutions to progress it. And I'll revert back to the previous comment. Because we're global, we're able to see what's a success in many different markets and distributions and be able to bring that back to the insurer, there's new ideas and new solutions to help them sell more or manage their enforced portfolio. Yeah, I can um, 
give you a bit of an example of the solution we offer in Australia, because I know you're in Australia. This is through kind of disability claims modeling is that because we have quite a significant portfolio of this product, we're able to assess the policyholder based upon the details or data about them. So gender, age, and where they come from, their job, the type of product that they've chosen and the features, we can have propensity to claim models running, which really helps insurers be on the front foot and say, okay, with this type of person, this is traditionally a long claim. So what we now need to do, early intervention is the best approach here. And through offering rehabilitation services to that that claimant early, enables them to get healthier quicker and get back to work quicker. So it's better for the customer, it's better for the insurer, it's better for the reinsurer. And we offer this scoring model for them. I can't help but to think that, does that mean the line between insurer and reinsurer is blurring? And to the extent that reinsurer is doing a lot more, those sort of, uh, let's say, a lot more of those hands-on work. And then to some extent, perhaps the insurer or maybe any company who have got a huge customer database or a huge customer base um, becoming uh, just a distribution channel in the GI space that is already so obvious in happen. Like we see the supermarket, the large retailer, they start offering the insurance, but they are just a, a distribution channel. Do you think that line is equally burning in the life insurance space, considering that I know that life insurance is about the long-term risk and it has got the, the so much more careful in assessing the risk? Yeah, it absolutely is. And it differs by which market you're in. So within the UK, you know, there's some clients that actually see, it's what we call sharing the risk, 100% of the risk to the reinsurer. This essentially means that, as you just said there, the insurer acts as a distribution hub. And so they really focus on making sure that the customer is good, that their sales distribution is good. And the reinsurer is the one that pays the claim, but is also the ones that helps design the product, designs the underwriting, does the claims management, all the different functions that you probably would associate with the insurer. The reinsurer does a lot of that in the background. Now for the listener who are in Australia and Southeast Asia, who are also coming from the insurance industry, I'm curious to know and ask this question on their behalf is that what is the dynamic that play in the UK pushing that reinsurer to take on 100% of the risk that is yet or not yet happening in different regions? Different markets? Yeah, different markets. Yeah, so there's a key characteristic there. There's two things. There's maturity of the market. So the UK is the most mature market where insurance started there. So the availability of data is much more than it is in Southeast Asia and over the duration that it's been there. And it's the second part is the cyclical nature between assessment of risks. So this is kind of the commercials between insurers and reinsurers. The situation that I'm describing in the UK is just where the reinsurer's view of that risk is less than the insurer's view of that risk. And hence, it's more profitable for the insurer to offload that risk to the reinsurer. So it's a unique dynamic in that market. And it may iron out over time. So reinsurers will likely harden on their prices and come back up a bit 
and align and then you'll start having more sharing. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, I want to end this interview with one big question, which is about as your view as a data, as an actuary, you touched on this a little bit as well earlier, is that we see so many emerging technologies like the AI, machine learning is on the rise in the pricing operation and the customer interaction across the insurance industry like you highlighted in the earlier. So in terms of the overall tech adoption within the financial and the insurance industry, what are your thoughts on the future of this emerging technology in the insurance industry? Yeah, as said before, it's a huge potential and it's going to be a challenge for us in the industry to be adopting them and being able to take credit for how those technologies are changing the underlying risk so that we can pass on the benefits to customers and provide value. That's on the actuarial side. And then on the market side, I guess it's also about trial and error and trusting these new propositions because we're in a business that deals with people at vulnerable times in their lives where they need help, whether that be medically or financially. And so the adoptions of some algorithms need to be emotionally sensitive. We can't afford to be messing things up. So we will be adopting them as soon as we can, but there's a learning curve for adopting them and ensuring they'll be applied in the right way. From my experience in dealing with both sides of the world, i.e. the actuaries and also these emerging tech people, I can't help but sometimes I feel that the actuary, because of the classical training in terms of beyond just the data, beyond just the modeling, but also in the economics and also the macroeconomic, all those sort of things give you guys a more balanced view in building an analytic solution. Do you think these are the things that perhaps for the Institute of Actuary, they can actually help to introduce to the data scientists who are trained in purely just the technical aspect of that? Yeah, I think there's an enormous amount of collaboration that could happen there. And for data scientists that love the data and want to get into the profession, I think it's a fantastic opportunity. It's a fantastic industry. It's very rewarding from it. Yeah, I mean, and I'll probably add behavioral economics to this as well. Actuaries, for me, having been through the profession and been qualified for a while now, it's very rigorous. I think it's depending on which profession you go to, it's 17 odd exams. It covers, like you said, macroeconomics, microeconomics, investments, pensions, insurance. So the end actually, once they become qualified as a fellow, they're very experienced from a very broad sense. So when they're dealing with risk, whether that be in multiple industries, when they're dealing with risks, they are able to take on board as much of the whole picture as they possibly can to build that picture up and to understand that the varying different angles of it and depths of it so that they can assess that risk in the right way and be able to mitigate it in the right way, which is very, very important as well. So the actuarial profession is very thorough, very thorough. It's quite... I agree. It's challenging and rewarding when you get to the end. (laughs) (laughs) I so agree. Now I'm wrapping this up by asking my two usual go-to question. Number one, what is your most important first principle? My most important first principle? First, I'll I'll give two, but they're they're really related, is that... um, 
I'm very much, very much a people person because how we deal with each other has an effect on all of us in terms of how we feel. So very much deal with people as treat others as you want to be treated yourself. And then the second one is kind of analyzing the decisions and the things you do is to say, well, if you were to relay what you're doing to your mentor or someone you look up to, would they be looking upon it favorably? So would you be proud to be saying that story? Because if you're not, probably should be questioning what you're doing. (laughs) And I think in using these approaches for dealing with people, making sure that you're caring about them, let's make sure that we put our best foot forward, a positive foot forward, and we make a bit more altruistic decisions. That's a good one. What is one book that you have read and thought it would have been better for your younger self to have? Uh-huh. My favorite books are of late. So the first one is definitely Ray Dalio's Principles of Life and Work. That absolutely rang true for me in terms of my mind is a little bit structured and reading his book really rang true for me to how I take a little, I try to take a lot of time of self-reflection and learning from past experiences to build in future mental tools for dealing with those experiences if they pop up in future. So his book was really, really good. And he sets his own principles out in it, which is a little window into his mind, which is fascinating. I agree. I have read that one. I actually really absolutely enjoy it. I actually plan to read it again (laughs) a few more times. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm still yet to kind of have the Sunday afternoon to sit down and make my own kind of principles list up. But (laughs) I very much want to do that one day. Sooner rather than later. He actually got an app to help doing that. I downloaded it, but I, I must confess, I haven't spent the time to do to follow. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been trying to download that app since the beginning, but it's not available in Hong Kong yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> so oh. so I'm, I'm still waiting. <laughs> Use a VPN. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bryce. Lovely to have you sharing the of the data analytics, actual profession in the reinsurance and the insurance industry. That was really, really a good one. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure, Jason. It's been really good chatting to you. Really good to see you again. <laughs> Thoroughly enjoyed it. 